Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. And we are recording just a few days before Election Day, uh, and our episode today is actually Election Day focused. It's fast approaching, and this is not about candidates or campaigns, really. This is about questions that are going to be on your ballot, so a very timely episode here, and make sure you're paying close attention to our discussion today because you need to be informed on these questions when you get to that voting booth on Tuesday, November 6th, and we hope you do turn out to vote. Before we get to today's episode, if you've missed anything recently, we've had some great episodes, some important discussion about policy, government function, Governor Cuomo's record, and much more. So find our episodes at any of your podcast channels or, of course, archived at Gotham Gazette or the CBC website. But today we are previewing an important part of Election Day, and we are joined by Cesar Perales. Thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure. And before we get into the discussion with Mr. Perales, here's Maria with today's data point. Three. Three is the number of proposals on your November 6th ballot for Mayor de Blasio's Charter Revision Commission, which convened earlier this year and held a series of listening sessions, expert panels, and other meetings to seek input about ways in which it should consider recommending to voters amendments to the city's central governing structure, which is found in the city charter. The mayor assembled the commission to focus on issues relating to voting and civic participation, and the commission came back with three ballot proposals related to those topics campaign finance reform, civic engagement, and community boards. In brief, the proposals would lower individual campaign contribution limits and increase public matching funds, create a new city commission charged with improving participation in civic affairs, and institute term limits on community board members. All voters in New York City will have the opportunity to vote yes or no on the three ballot measures on Election Day. Today, we will discuss the three proposals and the work of the Mayor's Charter Revision Commission with the Chair of the Commission, Cesar Perales, who has had a long career in public service before this commission, and he'll tell us about that, too. Welcome. Glad to be here. So you chaired this commission, and we're just a couple days from seeing how it all turns out in terms of uh, where the voters weigh in. We're going to discuss the three proposals, but first, for us, for listeners, tell us a little bit about that distinguished career that Maria mentioned. Well, um... I most recently served as Secretary of State of New York. I stepped down a couple of years ago. Uh, Prior to that, I had um, a great deal of New York City experience. In fact, uh, I met a young guy by the name of Bill de Blasio when I was deputy mayor of the city of New York. Uh, Under which mayor? David Dinkins. And that's when uh, Bill got into uh, government for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he still remembers me as uh, the important guy. Uh So uh, he wouldn't let me retire, uh, called me and said, uh, I need some help. I want to put together a a commission of distinguished citizens, and uh, I think you're a distinguished citizen. (laughs) And he asked me to chair the commission, and he put together a a good bunch of people, and they are distinguished. Uh, But let me just say that uh, before I served as deputy mayor, I also had some uh, other experience, I was State Commissioner of Social Services under Mario Cuomo, and uh, I even go back as a young guy to working with uh, Jimmy Carter in Washington. Uh-huh. So, uh, but Boy, we can wh- talk for hours about uh, some of the figures and, and jobs you mentioned. But one thing I do want to mention is that um, I think what made me particularly appropriate for this role was that um, I was a civil rights lawyer 
Uh, and among uh, the things I did was I sued the city of New York for its failure to provide uh, language assistance, uh, Spanish language assistance. And uh, that uh, concern I've always had about voting in New York City uh, has stayed with me. And uh, I, I think that's uh, very much what was behind uh, my interest in serving as chair. Before we go any further, what, how do you capture what the Secretary of State does in New York? Well, I, I keep telling people that the, the role of the Secretary of State depends very much on the relationship of that secretary with the governor. Uh, while uh, there are very uh, clearly defined legal responsibilities, uh, just like the secretary of any uh, corporation, of any group, they're in charge of keeping the records uh, and things of that nature. Uh, for example, if you were the governor and you resigned, you would have to resign to the Secretary of State. You'd have to send them a letter formally resigning. So that they're rather uh, important formal functions. But uh, for example, uh, as, uh, the governor allowed me to put in place a, an office of uh, new Americans, which goes back to my interest in, uh, in immigration, which was uh, beginning to happen uh, right after the, um, the governor's election in 2010 we then began to see uh, a number of issues arise around immigration. And the state government had no ability to address these issues, and so we created an Office of New Americans. I also created a, uh, a program to bring young people into, uh, into government. It was a fellowship program, and that still exists. So that, uh, in essence, the governor relied on me for many things that had nothing to do with the formal role of the Secretary of State. I was very much involved in economic development. And uh, in fact, on my uh, retirement, uh, he uh, insisted that I serve as a member of the board of the Empire State Development Corporation. So that uh, I, I'm one of the few people that is doing something for the governor while at the same time doing something for the mayor. One of those one of those few crossover figures that that must have very interesting insights. But the Secretary of State of New York doesn't play a role in managing the elections the way Not they do it here. She Not does in other states, right? We have a bipartisan uh, election, election commission. Right, right. So the Charter Revision Commission that we're here to talk about uh, mostly um, held a series of meetings, both public and private. Um, got to hear from any New Yorkers who wanted to show up and testify and give their ideas. You had sort of a mandate from the mayor. Then you had some expert panels where you really wanted to hear from people who are experts in the fields that you were, you were focusing in on. What do you want to say just sort of about the process and, and how it went and how well, you think right, it went? And, and, and also to take a step back, you know, who else serves on this commission with you and what were the, the expertise and the unique viewpoints that came from the other members of the commission as well? Well, if, if I can talk about... Uh, Rather than give names, let me just say that that, folks can find the list. Google it, people. (laughs) Right. I I had, um, for example, people who were expert in election law. Um, And they brought, I thought, something very special to the commission. We had members of the commission who had served on community boards themselves for years. Uh, We had uh, at least one former elected official. We had one person who was actually still working for the mayor of the city of New York, working with communities. So that uh, all of these people, as I said before, were, were what I would call distinguished New Yorkers. 
but they came uh, from a variety of backgrounds uh, and had really broad experience as to how New York City worked. They understood, for example, uh, probably as well as anybody else, why New Yorkers might not vote as much as other people. These kinds of insight, I thought, were very, very important. And uh, at the same time, they were all very diligent. They attended the meetings. They listened. They participated. And frankly, they learned a great deal about what the people of New York City felt at this particular moment in time. So how, how extensive was the process to solicit input from the public? And over what time period? I mean, the, Well, we started holding hearings uh, back in April. Uh, stopped uh, in September. Uh, so, but that, that w- during that period of time, we held hearings in every borough, uh, more than one. Multiple times, I, yeah. I, I, I would add. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had small meetings, for example, focused on veterans. Others on, uh, focused on, on young people. Uh, more importantly, we received an awful lot of uh, emails uh, that, that's the way people communicate nowadays. I mean, social media, the, the, we were receiving, I think someone said that we received about 1,000 uh, suggestions about changes to the city charter. So I think, um, and, and let me just say something. We had a great staff. and uh, Right, it's not just the commissioners. There's also a staff. Exactly. Uh, these were people. Research. And- exactly. Mm-hmm. People who had been in, go- who were in, in government and were lent to the commission for this period of time, and they were fantastic. So that some uh, against their will, some. By <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, they, they all tried to tell me that they were glad <laughs> to be there. So you got, and you think a thousand suggestions is a good number. I mean, that's one of the questions around something like this, especially something that comes together on a fairly short timeline and goes over the summer months. Was the par- public participation what you felt it could have yes. been, should have been? Yes, I mean, we, we, we could have had more people at, at particular public hearings, but generally, they were very well attended. Uh, we were all, I remember being there late into the night to make sure that we got everybody an opportunity to speak, so that, uh, and, and these were held in the evenings so that people who worked could attend. So, no, we were very pleased with the process. So you've got very extensive feedback from the public. Now, how did you go about and what was the process for sort of filtering out which proposals, recommendations would rise to the top on their merits? Well, some were were pretty obvious. Uh, Let me make, uh, for example, community boards. Uh, The mayor did not uh, suggest that we look at community boards, but we were overwhelmed with, uh, frankly, criticism of the way community boards were operating so in we most should, of these communities. We should explain, right, that the mayor can convene a, a commission and suggest what that commission's scope yes. of work would be, but once you're started, you can look at everything. Everything. Right. Everything in the charter, and we did. But you are correct. His interest was, if I can put it succinctly, uh, getting big money out of politics and be trying to make uh, the city more democratic in, in some fashion. And so when you... Community boards were something you heard a lot about, so that sort of rose to, was elevated to another one of these central topics. There were things, so we'll dig into the three proposals very soon, but there were things that you heard about that you decided you weren't going to take on, right? There were many of those if if you're getting all these. There were two in particular that uh, one was um, the fair vote people 
mm-hmm. were uh, were very active. Uh, they um, they wanted rank choice voting uh, to be made part of the city charter, so that uh, the people in the city of New York, when they went to an election, would not just vote for a particular person, but that they would rank. Let's say if there were a half dozen candidates, they're number one, number two, uh, and and the purpose of that was presumably to to ensure that the person who was uh, really the winner in the election um, was selected and you didn't need a runoff. Mm-hmm. That was the... Right, it's also known as instant runoff voting. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vehicle to get to the instant runoff was this rank voting, right. and I want the public to understand. But it was so very complicated in the sense that there are different ways of ranking people, uh, there were so many ways. Well, e- even the whole question of whether you would use it just to avoid instant runoffs, because some uh, positions in the city of New York do not require a runoff. Right, right, right. Uh, there were a variety of questions. And then at the end, we uh, started indicate, learning about the fact that some cities that had tried it decided it didn't work for them, and that it was damaging, and went back to the more traditional way of voting. Uh, Frankly, as you pointed out, uh, we didn't have that much time. Mm -hmm. We certainly had enough time to hear from the public, but we didn't have as much time as we would have wanted to to address a question like uh, instant runoff or ranked voting. So uh, we put that aside. And the other one that uh, surprised us as well was the issue of redistricting of the city council. Uh, the city council redistricts, in essence, itself because they appoint the majority of the people that are on the redistricting commission. And there was a lot of concern about that, something that we, when we had started our process, didn't think that people were that concerned about. But apparently what has made it uppermost in the minds of many people is that uh, the Supreme Court, in, in the Shelby decision, Uh, in essence, ended the federal oversight of elections under the the Voting Rights Act, in essence. Uh, And that was because there had been a history of uh, imposing certain requirements on, uh, well, language requirements, for example, uh, to vote in New York City years ago. So uh, there was no longer going to be federal oversight over the way redistricting was done. And so, again, many experts came forward and said, you've got to look at this and uh, ensure that you've got a truly objective group of people on a redistricting commission. Again, it was something we were very interested in, but ultimately decided uh, there's so many ways of redistricting, of appointing a commission. You could just say we want one that uh, is not dominated by, uh, by the city council. But there are a million ways. Do you, do you want retired judges to sit around in a room and do the redistricting? Do you want maybe a mix of, of elected officials and non-elected officials? So that it, it, I, th- I thought this was another one that we just didn't have the time to get into. Two very interesting topics, but yeah. uh, perhaps fodder for another Charter Revision Commission. So I, assu- I, I would imagine that there was a good bit of discussion behind the scenes, though, on those issues of whether you could take them up or yes. should take yes. them up, and that was yes. where your expert commissioners and staff had to really... E- exactly, uh-huh. exactly. And and was there any 
point at which you had to, you know, it was almost like the, the sides were even and you had to come in and make the call or was it pretty clear behind the scenes that like... There, there were some things that were <laughs> tough, but I, I don't think we need to get You're into You're not going to get into those point. internal deliberations. Okay. So I think before we discuss the specific proposals on the ballot, um, I have kind of like a broader question, which is why was it important that these proposals be um, in the charter? Why should the charter be revised to accommodate these needs or interests or uh, objectives instead of having the mayor work directly with the city council to do it via local law? Well, I, I think some things are more difficult for the city council to do. They, uh, and, and this sounds almost undemocratic, but uh, they've got to get elected. We, we can sit back and, and make uh, decisions uh, and not have to go back and face the voters. Uh, so I think it makes it easier. Just for on us. the proposals on election day, but not, yeah. <laughs> exactly. not to be reappointed. Uh -huh. Exactly. Right. Uh -huh. And uh, when you talk about redistricting, I don't think you can go to the city council. Well, no, of course. And, that's, and, 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 right. and that's, that's about the structure of government and how the process works, but something like creating an office. Yes. That's a good point. I mean, we thought about just creating an office, but uh, we felt that we, it'd be better if we created a commission that um, would have, for example, a requirement that there be a Republican on it. Uh, that uh, there be This is question two now. We're yes. jumping for a second, but this is, this is question two of creating the Civic Engagement Commission. Exactly. We, it could have been done by the mayor. I think we decided that uh, we thought it would be better if it was in the charter. Uh, if there was another mayor, he couldn't do away with it. He'd, uh, he'd, he'd have to appoint a commission until the charter was changed. And I also thought that the way we designed it was more democratic. So let's, let's talk about it. I guess let's skip to the second one. How, how is the commission designed? What's it intended to do? How is it going to work under the proposal? Well, this is question two on your ballot, the Civic Engagement two. Commission. And, and I think it goes directly to the issue of the fact that New Yorkers, frankly, don't vote. We've got a very low uh, voter participation rate. And is it lower than other places or other big much, cities in the nation? Much lower than just about any other place. And I think the, the sense we got from listening to people was that there was um, very little opportunity for you to get engaged in what's going on in your community, in the city. Uh, I think it also has to do with the fact that we're so big. I mean, uh, in case we haven't noticed, we've got well over 8 million people in this city. And uh, when you have a city that size, people don't exactly feel that they uh, can make a difference. And so we, we looked at ways in which other cities were doing that and addressing it. I mean, all of us uh, felt that uh, there were instruments within city government that if they worked together could do a much better job of engaging people. But I was particularly struck by the testimony. In fact, we saw a film clip of the city of Madrid, and they have a uh, one-month participatory budgeting process in which everybody gets together. It's almost like little town halls are held all over the place. And the other thing we had heard was that in some of the city council districts where they do participatory budgeting, people loved it. People really got engaged. Now, what it is is that each district, you, you break the city down in, into districts, well over 50 of them, in which you then uh, allot a certain amount of money, let's call it a million dollars, and you say, let the people, through meetings, through getting together, 
decide how to spend that $1 million. They could spend it on uh, fixing up the playground, uh, putting, uh, fixing the elevator in the, in the senior center, uh, buying computers for the after-school program. These kinds of things are important to people locally. Uh, and people got engaged. I mean, they'd argue over what it is that uh, we ought to spend this money on. And this, was, this worked very well because in, in these places, I mean, there were cities in Brazil where people were so involved that they were, next time an election came along, I mean, they were, they were raring to go. I mean, so we thought that if we had something like that on a citywide basis, uh, that it would make a difference. I'd like to see New York City have the most important, in fact, be a leader nationally and internationally on participatory budgeting. As you indicated, this, there are, I think it's over 30 city council members doing a version of participatory budgeting in their districts. This would be this new commission runs a citywide process. Exactly. And therefore doesn't let the maybe a third of city council members right now opt out who are not doing it. And some say they're not doing it because it's hard on their staff resources. They have to run it themselves, basically. So this, this creates an entirely different mechanism. Exactly. Them. And it's one that uh, also would require the mayor to put up his own money. Uh-huh. So that... Uh, well, one could say the mayor puts up the entire capital budget. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. Um, but uh, it, it, the mayor right now uh, doesn't put up any of what I would call the mayor's own money. That this money comes from the allocation given to the city council. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would, I think, uh, substantially increase the amount of money. But more importantly, allow for the entire city to be engaged at the same time. Mm-hmm. This would, you know, many people don't know, if they don't live in the, in the city council district, don't know about participatory budgeting. I mean, this would make it a big deal, which is why I think that the creating this commission, uh, whose responsibility is not just participatory budgeting, but getting people involved in government would make such a difference. I mean, I really believe that that's uh, going to work. We should know, right, as you just said, that the participatory budgeting program is one aspect of what this commission would do. Yes. It, it, it would be tasked by the by the language that would be put into the charter if this is approved with doing all sorts of things related to civic engagement, including things like, as you mentioned, work that you've been done in the past and been passionate about uh, language services exactly. and poll sites and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, well, let's, let's get into ahead. that for one moment because I think it is important. I mean, one of the reasons I, I also think that people are not engaged is not just because it's a big city, but it's because we have so many immigrants. Uh, and there are, in essence, people who become citizens, but that, they, they have to pass a very basic English exam. They're not comfortable in English. And suddenly, they're expected to vote. Well, many of them are afraid to go and vote. They don't know the language that well. So I think the, the Civic Commission, Civic Engagement Commission, can require and put in place a process to ensure that there is language assistance, even for that uh, one Albanian that uh, needs to vote, or the, or the, the two Lithuanians mm-hmm. somewhere else. And what does that look like, that assistance? Is it on-site Well, I, I, I can't tell you what it looks right. like because we're, we're, we're asking the, the commission, commission to figure it out. Then, okay. To figure okay. it out. Okay. But, but that's the mandate for the commission. I mean, that's clear. Okay. You've got to make it easy for everybody to vote, regardless of their language and how many of them there are. Right now, unless you have a whole lot of people speaking the same language in the same 
area, there is no federal requirement for language assistance. Right. This has been a, a, a pretty significant topic of discussion in the city over the last couple of years and election cycles around who gets translators and which poll sites have which languages available. And so this would look at a, a bit of a different um, way of doing it and, and providing more access. Uh, last thing for me, I guess, on, on this second ballot question, then maybe we'll go back and talk about the campaign finance one. The first one is the some of the folks urging a no vote on this are worried that this commission, 15 members, eight appointed by the mayor, too much mayoral influence, it's not independent enough, therefore. Um, when you were designing it, how did you land on le- allowing a mayor to have the majority as opposed to maybe a plurality? You know, a, a moment ago we talked about the fact that the mayor could just create the commission. I mean, this is... Uh, trying to make it so that it's not just the mayor that is involved in improving civic engagement. It's trying to get everybody in the government an opportunity to appoint somebody, to have a voice in the creation of this commission. But what the commission is going to do uh, is not the... Their very purpose is to get more people engaged in in, in city government so that uh, I I don't know what the concern is. that uh, you have a commission where that is dominated by the mayor. I mean, that happens. I mean, that's why we elect the mayor. Uh, but I, I don't see the problem. And frankly, the fact that there would be other people involved it seems to be a vast improvement over just creating an office. And we do encourage everybody to look at all the language. We can't go over it all here. You know, these are somewhat complicated. They, they have top-line missions for each ballot proposal that we can pretty clearly articulate here and, and have in our introduction but there's also lots of details that folks need to familiarize themselves with. Um, but I'll just add, as you're indicating, of the 15 members that would be in this commission, eight from the mayor, then you have some from the city council speaker and one each from the borough president. And so you do get a mix of appointments. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that debate could continue about how much influence the mayor should have in appointing, in appointing those uh, commissioners. And that's obviously up for people to, to determine which way they think is is best, and if this setup is is what they they like to see. So another point of engagement for people locally is their community board, right? And so one of the third proposal on your ballot will limit the time a member of the community board can serve to four two year terms, consecutively. Consecutively, so eight years at a time. Um, tell us about what the thinking was behind that. As I, I mentioned earlier, that the the response to our asking people of how you can improve uh, the, the city government and how do you improve democracy, uh, resulted in an awful lot of criticism of the existing uh, structure of community boards being the, the vehicle for people to express uh, their views at the local level. And the reason is because lots of people felt that they didn't know uh, how to get on. Others felt that it was all a secret process, or if you didn't know uh, the borough president and, and the member of the city council, you didn't have a shot. There was no way of doing it. This was a secret process. Now, there were examples of, of ways in which uh, it had worked much more democratically, Manhattan being the, the best example in which uh, people actually talked about the fact that uh, in Manhattan, it's a public process. Uh, in fact, um, you've got a waiting list now, the criticism in Manhattan was that uh, you've got to wait for some of these people to die to, uh, to get on, and you've got uh, communities that are constantly changing. Uh, 
we all know about uh, about how cities change. I mean, it's not the same city I grew up in. And so uh, we were looking for a way of ensuring that the something that we admired and thought was a good idea uh, could be made better. And, and I think the, the, that ended up with these proposals, that you have a very transparent appointment process, that people can look and see how it was that somebody was appointed by whom, uh, at what point, how many years ago, even something about that person's background, mm -hmm. what their application was. Their, their application process ought to be public. It ought not to be a, a, a secret process. Uh, and we understood that uh, there would be people, uh, frankly, borough presidents and members of the city council, that might not like this, that would see this as an infringement on, uh, on their authority. Uh, but uh, along the way is this idea of limiting the term. I mean, there were just so many people who came forward and said, Johnny Jones has been sitting on the, on, uh, on the community board for 30 years. Uh, what do I have to do, wait for him to die before I can get on? Uh, so uh, we decided that the best way to do it would be to say, let's, let's use the same period of time that uh, other city officials have, because these are sort of quasi-city officials. Give them eight years. But uh, since there was concern about uh, losing good people, let them step off for one term for two years, and then they could be reappointed. And even during that two-year period, they could continue to go to uh, the community board meetings. Right, they're not excommunicated. They're not excommunicated. <laughs> and, you know, they, they can still go and raise their hand and participate. Right. So... Uh, we thought that this was the best way of, of addressing that issue. You know, we said it in the open that that's the top line is, is term limits on community board members. But what is sometimes getting lost in the discussion is that all that is really required is a two-year, quote-unquote, cooling-off period, um, you know, where you have to step off. And if you, as you say, are really committed to your community, you get to participate in other ways, and then you could be reappointed. Um, so that is an interesting element of discussion. Well, do, I mean, yeah. th to the point about making it more public, did you consider changing the appointment process to something else? Because now it is very much at the discretion of the borough president. Very briefly. Mm -hmm. um, we really did not feel that that was necessary at this point, that what we needed was uh, to have a very open and transparent process, mm -hmm. give more people an opportunity. Uh, for example... It, it, I won't mention the county, but um, in, in, in one of the boroughs, you had uh, a movement toward bringing in a new health center to serve an immigrant community. And uh, it was voted down because uh, it would result in less parking spaces in, uh, in the neighborhood. So that uh, you, you have new people trying to get on to influence decision-making uh, and yet you've got an old guard in many of these uh, places that, that just uh, won't go along with it, won't be responsive. As you indicated, the, um, this one is probably the one <laughs> that would have had very little chance of happening if it wasn't for a Charter Revision Commission. Absolutely. This is, this is the one of the three that seems to be the, the, the type of thing that needed this sort of um, you know, independent That has to entity. go through that process. Yeah, instead yes. of going through legislation. I guess, again, the main pushback here, and you've already touched on this, but is this idea that at eight years, you know, people on community boards, this is not a full-time job by any means. This is 
these are people voluntarily doing this, not paid, part of their community, um, evenings, weekends, stuff like that. And by eight years, they're sort of really just learning how to do it. Um, and then they have to, you know, step off. Um, and then, you know, who knows if they're willing to go back on or something like that. I mean, um, did that, did that give you any pause? Did that concern you? You know, when you heard that feedback of we don't, I mean, maybe because they're not full-time officials, it should be six or seven or eight terms before they have to be bumped off. You know? Well, I mean, we obviously heard from a lot of people and that issue did come up. But uh, the more important issue was that there felt, there was a feeling that the institutional knowledge was most important when it came to issues of land use. That was the most complicated thing. Uh, in fact, many people came forward and were very unhappy about uh, the fact that there was gentrification in their community and that uh, what would happen is that somebody would come before them, some high-powered lawyer who understood uh, zoning and uh, all of the other complications, uh, and would uh, persuade them. So we felt that the real need was not just to have people on there a long, longer period of time, but to have the ability of a community board to have independent assistance, independent consultants uh, on these kinds of complicated issues. And so it is linked to the Civic Engagement Commission. We didn't talk about it, but one of the responsibilities of the Civic Engagement Commission is to set up a, a system of providing expert consultants to community boards that are facing these questions. Uh, again, I can't tell you exactly how we will do it, but the idea is that there would be a certain amount of money set aside for the Civic Engagement Commission to assist community boards facing these kinds of issues. And when you say you can't tell us, it's be not because you, you won't, it's because the commission has exactly. to figure that out if, exactly. if, if it's approved. Exactly. But that was one of my questions was there is this um, overlap between questions two and three, as you yes. just referred to. Well... What happens if question two is not approved? There's no civic engagement commission, but question three is the community board, um, you know, term limits and streamlined application process and more transparency that it requires, all the things in question three. But question three presupposes, as you just said, more resources and expertise well, from the it, commission. It, it, it doesn't. I mean, it's one can stand without the other, but clearly we think that... Uh, we can strengthen community boards by providing them with consultant assistance. You can still have term limits mm -hmm. uh, sure. without the, the additional monies that would be available through the Civic Engagement Commission. So Ben's question leads me to ask, but I think before we just touch on the last the last proposal briefly, you know, did you consider you have a lot of discretion as the commission about whether to package these questions all as one item on the ballot, package deal, take it or leave it, or separate them out? So how did you think about that? Well, mostly it was staff and uh, the Corporation Council uh, as to what would work best. I thought this made sense when they came back and said, uh, these, breaking it up in these three ways gives people the, uh, the best opportunity. You, we could have had one question, 
Right. But I don't think that would have been fair. Yeah, that, that, this, this is complicated know. enough right. well, as it, it is, but it, my, it it's gets an to the point question. that it's often a political calculation, right? If there's something that may not be as popular as the other items, putting it together will force people to say, okay, I don't love all of it, but, right. you know, there's something I really care about, so I'm voting yes and, you know, taking my vegetables with it. <laughs> right. That's, yeah. a good, that's a good point. Um, okay, so we're in our last few minutes here with Cesar Perales, the chair of the Charter Revision Commission that was impaneled by Mayor Bill de Blasio this year uh, that has proposed three ballot questions for the back of your ballot on Election Day. We've touched on questions two and three, question two about creating a civic engagement commission, question three about reforms to community boards. Question one is a campaign finance reform measure, lowering <laughs> lowering maximum donations to candidates, increasing the public match, yes. providing some public money earlier in the cycle, which has been something that candidates have expressed concerns about in the past. Um, your your general uh, comment on well, question one. Well, that, that was uh, actually the, the one issue that we wanted to bring to, uh, to the public and, and to seek their reaction. We felt very strongly that... Uh, we wanted to limit contributions, uh, if that made sense. And uh, much to, um, well, my shock, and I'm being cynical now, uh, the, uh, the public said that, you know, money talks in, in government. If, uh, if I'm allowed to give over $5,000 to a mayoral candidate, and I can get my wife to do the same, and a couple of my friends, I'm going to get my phone calls returned when I want to talk to the mayor. Uh, the guy in the street who uh, doesn't make a contribution or who can make a $20 contribution, uh, no one's going to call him back. Uh, and so that cynicism uh, was very clear in all of our uh, hearings and in the comments that we received. The As you indicated, the citywide limit is is dropping drastically from what was going to, or would if this is approved, from over $5,000 individual contributions down to about uh, 2000 two, $2, I mean, that's, that's, that's a significant chop. Um, that would get things more in line with the federal limit, the individual contribution limit um, to candidates. Uh, I guess the, the question I want to ask on that is, are, was there concern that this simply drives money from wealthier contributors to independent expenditures, right? There's all the concern about super PACs and, you know, and PACs and, and influence from outside the normal contribution we, process. We were not prepared to go beyond contributions made by individuals. Uh, whether or not that happens, uh, that should be addressed separately. We were focused on individual contributions. We were also focused on getting the little guy to get more engaged in the process. I mean, this underlies all of these things really are to try to make this city more democratic, to make people who are today not active participants in our politics active participants. By raising the contribution limits from a match of six to one to eight to one, while capping the contributions made by people who have resources. You suddenly make the little guy pretty important. You hit on a key aspect, which we didn't mention yet, which is, not, which is it increases um, the, 
the specifics of mm-hmm. the of the match for smaller donations, and and that is one argument of those supporting uh, out there saying this will push candidates to focus more on small dollar contributions. Exactly, and there's and I don't want people to think that it's eight to one and you can give the two thousand uh, dollars. Eight to one right. on if in a citywide race for people up to two hundred and fifty dollars of a contribution. Mm-hmm. So, right, again, we can't give you every number here, folks right. listening. There's different things for citywide candidates versus borough-wide and city right. councils. So, you know, this is – we're sort of focused on some of the citywide numbers because that is often where you get the bigger numbers and where where the – People are more energized to contribute. Yes. Um, so last question for me on that one is the other question around that is along with – does this drive some of that money into the sort of, you know, uh, super PACs and independent expenditures, which, again, you don't really have that much. You couldn't even do much on because of Supreme Court rulings. But um, was there concern about how much more taxpayer money is being put into campaign finance? There are people who, you know, they're okay with yes. some public matching system. You know? yes. So what was that dis- well, thought I mean, process like? Frankly, the discussion was, should we, should we not make a tent to one? Uh, uh, there were an awful lot of voices saying that makes it, that's easier to understand. That's a nice even number. Make it ten to one, mm. uh, and and we thought about it, and uh, we thought about the the impact uh, on the city fisc. Not that it's a great one; it's relatively small, but the impression that uh, as somebody put it, we're giving these politicians uh, taxpayer money so that they can run political campaigns. That that just sounded bad. So we thought that an adjustment. From six to one to eight to one made sense. We thought mathematically, when we ran the modeling, uh, it would enable people to have as much money to to run a campaign. There are uh, limits uh, as to how much you can spend on a mayoral campaign. You could reach that amount with the, this new scheme of uh, capping the contribution, uh, increasing the match. You can still get to the same. Uh, let's call it seven or eight million dollars, whatever the, the the money may be that you can run in a campaign, and and that would uh, would enable us to continue to have uh, active, aggressive campaigns, and at the same time do it in a way that it doesn't cost that much money to the fisc. It's a relatively small money. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Could could continue to talk even on even on these sort of wonky ballot proposals for for a lot longer. But we we appreciate your time. Um, folks should be prepared to vote on these three measures. There are questions for you to answer from this Charter Revision Commission on your ballot on Election Day. Three questions uh, that the chair of the commission, Cesar Perales, has been uh, kind enough to join us to discuss today. Thank you very much for being here. It's been my pleasure. And don't forget to flip your ballot. Flip the ballot. It's on the back. On the front, you've got the candidates, but on the back, you've got these three questions. Right, and we, we know our listeners are going to vote, but please also, given what you heard today about the low participation rate, make sure you go to your friends and family into getting to the polls, too. There you go. Thank you. Bye. Bye.